0: Chapter four of Faces and Places This Librivox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding Faces and Places by Henry W. Lucy Chapter four A Historic Crowd I very much regret that so much of your valuable time has been absorbed, said the Lord Chief Justice, speaking to the Titchborne jury as the massive form of the claimant vanished through the side door, never more to enter the court of Queen's Bench. But it will be a consolation to you to think that your names will be associated in history with the most remarkable trial that has ever occurred in the annals of England. There was another jury outside Sir Alexander Coburn's immediate observation that always struck me and I saw a good deal of it, as not the least notable feature in the great trial that at one time engrossed the attention of the English-speaking race. That was the crowd that gathered outside the courts of justice, then still an adjunct of Westminster Hall. As there never was before a trial like that of the claimant, so there never was a crowd like this. It had followed him through all the vicissitudes of his appeal to the jury of his countrymen, and of his countrymen subsequently handing him over to another jury upon a fresh appeal. It began to flood the broad spaces at the bottom of Parliament Street in far off days when the case of Tichborne v. Lushington was opened in the Sessions House, and it continued without weariness or falling off all through the progress of the civil suit beginning again with freshened zeal with the commencement of the criminal trial. Like the Seven, Palace Yard filled twice a day, whilst the Blue Brougham had its daily mission to perform, the crowd assembling in the morning to welcome the coming claimant, and foregathering in the evening to speed him on his departure westward. It ranged in numbers from five thousand down to a thousand. Put the average at three thousand, multiply it by two hundred and ninety one, the aggregate number of days which the claimant was before the courts in his varied character of plaintiff and defendant, and we have eight hundred and seventy three thousand as the total of the assemblage. As a rule, the congregation of Monday was the largest of the week. Why this should be, students of the manners of this notable crowd were not agreed some held that the circumstance was to be accounted for by the fact that two days had elapsed during which the claimant was not on view and that on monday the crowd came back like a giant refreshed to the feast which by regular repetition had partially palled on friday's appetite others found the desired explanation in the habit which partly obtains among the labouring classes of taking Monday as a second day of rest in the week, and of devoting a portion of it to the duty of going down to Westminster Hall to cheer Sir Roger. Probably both causes united to bring together the greater crowd of Monday afternoons. It must not be supposed that the mob was composed wholly or principally of what are called the working classes. When an honourable member rose in the House of Commons, and complained of the inconvenience occasioned to legislators by the Tichbourne crowd, another member observed that, relative numbers considered, the House of Commons contributed as much to swell the throng as any other section of the people. During the last months of the trial, if any class predominated, it was that which came from the provinces the claimant was undoubtedly one of the sights of London, and before his greater attraction the traditional monument, which elsewhere lifts its tall head and like a bully lies, sank into absolute insignificance. Not to have seen the claimant argued the London of the period unknown fashionably dressed ladies and exquisitely attired gentlemen battled for front places upon the pavement with sturdy agriculturists who had brought their wives and daughters to see sir roger and who had not the slightest intention of going back till they had accomplished their desire It came to pass that there were some two hundred faces in the crowd familiar to the police as daily attendants at the four o'clock festival in Palace Yard. Day after day they came to feast their eyes on the portly figure of Sir Roger, and having gazed their fill, went away to return again on the morrow. There was one aged gentleman whose grey gaiters, long-tailed coat and massive umbrella were as familiar in Palace Yard as are the features on the clock-face in the tower. He came up from somewhere in the country in the days when Keneally commenced his first speech, and being a hale old man, he survived long enough to be in the neighbourhood when the learned gentleman had finished his second. At the outset he was wont to fight gallantly for a place of vantage in the ranks near the archway of the hall. Then, before the advances of younger and stouter newcomers, he faded away into the background. Towards the end he wandered about outside the railings in Bridge Street, and as the clock struck four, got the umbrella as near as its natural obstructiveness would permit to the carriage gate, whence the claimant's brougham was presently to issue. At first the police authorities dealt with the assembly in the ordinary manner a more or less sufficient force being told off for the duty of keeping the thoroughfare clear it soon became manifest that the tichborne crowd like everything else in connection with the trial required a special treatment and accordingly a carefully elaborated scheme was prepared superintendent denning had under his command for the preservation of peace and order in palace yard and the adjacent thoroughfares not less than sixty men one or two were stationed in the justice chamber itself and must by the time the verdict had been delivered have got pretty well up in the details of the case others guarded the entrance door others lined the passage into the yard others were disposed about the yard itself whilst after three o'clock two strong companies stood in reserve in the sheds that flank the entrance to the hall. At half-past three the crowd began to assemble, building itself up upon the little nucleus that had been hanging about all day. The favourite standpoint, especially in the cold, uncertain winter weather that marked the conclusion of the trial, was inside Westminster Hall where the people were massed on the far side of a temporary barricade which the tichborne case called into being the railing of which was worn black by the touch of the hands of the faithful outside in the yard the crowd momentarily thickened till it formed a dense lane opening out from the front of the hall and turning to the left down to the south carriage gate the railings in Bridge Street and St Margaret Street were banked with people, and ranks were formed on the pavement in front of the grass plot. At a quarter to four the policemen under the shed received the word of command, and marched out into St Margaret Street, some filing off to take charge of the gates, whilst the rest were drawn up on the pavement opposite and at the corner of Bridge Street. With the mission of preventing rushes after the claimant's carriage, as it drove through. A few minutes later the distinguished vehicle itself, a plain dark-blue brougham drawn by a finely bred bay mare, drove into the yard, and taking up its position a little on one side of the entrance to the hall, became the object of curious and respectful consideration. As the great clock boomed four strokes, the doors of the court opened. And the privileged few who had been present at the day's proceedings issued forth. The excitement increased as the court emptied, culminating when, after a brief lull, the claimant himself appeared and waddled down the living lane that marked the route to his carriage. There was much cheering and a great amount of pocket handkerchief waving, which Sir Roger acknowledged by raising his hat and smiling that smile of peculiar sweetness and grace, which Dr. Keneally brought under the notice of the three judges and a special jury. As the claimant walked through the doorway, closely followed by the inspector, the policemen on guard suddenly closed the doors, and the public within Westminster Hall found themselves netted and hopelessly frustrated in what was evidently their intention of rushing out, and sharing the outside crowd's privilege of staring at the claimant as he actually stepped into his carriage. The outside throng in Palace Yard, meanwhile, made the most of their special privilege, crowding round Sir Roger, and cheering in a manner that made the bay mare plunge and rear. With the least possible delay, the claimant is got into the brougham, the door is banged to, and the bay mare is driven swiftly through the yard, the crowd closing in behind. But when they reach the gates and essay to pass and flood the streets beyond, where the gigantic umbrella of the aged gentleman looms uplifted over the shoulders of the line of police like the section of a windmill sail, the iron gates are swung to, and this. The second and larger portion of the crowd is likewise safely trapped, and can gaze upon the retreating brougham only through iron bars, that, in this instance at least, do make a cage. There are not many people outside, for it is hard to catch even a passing glimpse of the occupant of the carriage as it drives swiftly westward to Pimlico, finally pulling up in a broad street of a severely respectable appearance. Not to be marred even by the near contiguity of Millbank Convict Prison. Here also is a crowd, though only a small one, and select to wit, being composed chiefly of well dressed ladies, forming part of a band of pilgrims who daily walked up and down the street, waiting and watching the outgoing and incoming of Sir Roger. They are rewarded by the polite upraising of Sir Roger's hat and a further diffusion of the sweet and gracious smile and having seen the door shut upon the portly form and having watched the brougham drive off they too go their way and the drama is over for the day but the crowd in and about palace yard have not accomplished their mission when they have seen the blue brougham fade in the distance there is the doctor to come yet And all the cheering has to be repeated, even with added volume of sound. When the claimant has got clear away, and the crowd have had a moment or two of breathing time, the doctor walks forth from the council's entrance, and is received with a burst of cheering and clapping of hands, which, just like Sir Roger, he acknowledges by raising his hat, but unlike him, Permits no trace of a smile to illumine his face without looking right or left. The doctor walks northward, raising his hat as he passes the caged and cheering crowd in Palace Yard with the same grave countenance, not moved in the slightest degree by the comical effect of the big men in the crowd at his heels waving their hats over his head. The doctor crosses Bridge Street and walks into Parliament Street, as far as the Treasury, where a cab is waiting. Into this he gets with much deliberation, and with a final waving of his hat, and always with the same imperturbable countenance, is driven off, and Parliament Street, subsiding from the turmoil in which the running, laughing, shouting mob have temporarily thrown it, finds time to wonder... Whether it would not have been more convenient for all concerned if the doctor's cab had picked him up at the door of Westminster Hall. Slowly approached the end of this marvellous and, to a succeeding generation, almost incredible and altogether inexplicable phenomenon. It came about noon on Saturday, the final day of February, 1874. A few minutes before ten o'clock on that morning, the familiar bay mare and the well-known blue brougham—where are they now?—appeared in sight, with a contingent of volunteer-running footmen, who cheered Sir Roger with unabated enthusiasm. As the carriage passed through into the yard, a cordon of police promptly drew up behind it across the gateway, and stopped the crowd that would have entered with it but inside there was, within reasonable limits, no restraint upon the movements of the claimant's admirers, who lustily cheered and wildly waved their hats, drowning in the greater sound the hisses that came from a portion of the assemblage. The claimant looked many shades graver than in the days when Keneally's speech was in progress. Nevertheless, he smiled acknowledgement of the reception and repeatedly raised his hat. When he had passed in, the throng in Palace Yard rapidly vanished, not more than a couple of hundred remaining in a state of vague expectation. Westminster Hall itself continued to be moderately full, a compact section of the crowd that had secured places of vantage between the barricade and the temporary telegraph station, evidently being prepared to see it out, at whatever hour the end might come, for the next hour there was scarcely any movement in the hall save that occasioned by persons who lounged in, looked round, and either ranged themselves in the ranks behind the policemen or strolled out again, holding to the generally prevalent belief that if they returned at two o'clock, they would still have sufficient hours to wait in the yard. A thin line extended from the side of the hall gateway backwards to the railings in St. Margaret's Street, with another line drawn up across the far edge of the broad carriageway before the entrance. There was no ostentatious show of police, but they had a way of silently filing out from under the sheds or out of the Commons gateway, in proportion as the crowd thickened which conveyed the impression that there was a force somewhere about that would prove sufficient to meet any emergency. As a matter of fact, Mr. Superintendent Denning had under his command three hundred men, who had marched down to Westminster Hall at six o'clock in the morning, and were chiefly disposed in reserve, ready for action as circumstances might dictate. At half-past eleven, there being not more than three or four hundred people in Palace Yard, a number of press messengers rushing helter-skelter out of the court and into waiting cabs, indicated the arrival of some critical juncture within the jealously guarded portals. Presently it was whispered that the Lord Chief Justice had finished his summing up, and that Mr Justice Mellor was addressing the jury. A buzz of conversation rose and fell in the hall, and the ranks drew closer up, waiting in silence the consummation that could not now be far distant. The news spread with surprising swiftness, not only in Palace Yard, but throughout Bridge Street and St. Margaret Street, and the railings looking thence into the yard became gradually banked with rows of earnest faces little groups formed on the pavement about the corners of parliament street faces appeared at the windows of the houses overlooking the yard and the whole locality assumed an aspect of grave and anxious expectation a few minutes after the clock in the tower had slowly boomed forth twelve strokes it was known in the bail court where a dozen rapid hands were writing out words the echo of which had scarcely died away in the inner court, that the judges had finished their task, and that the jury had retired to consider their verdict. It was known also in the lobbies, where a throng of gowned and wigged barristers were assembled, hanging on as the fringe of the densely packed audience that sat behind the claimant, and overflowed by the opened doorway. Thence it reached the crowd outside, and after the first movement and hum of conversation had subsided, a dead silence fell upon Westminster Hall, and all eyes were fixed upon the door by which, at any moment, messengers might issue with the word, or words, up to the utterance of which, by the foreman of the jury, the great trial slowly dragged its length. Half an hour later the door burst open, and messengers came leaping in breathless haste down the steps and across the hall, shouting as they ran, "'Guilty! Guilty on all counts!' The words were taken up by the crowd, and passed from mouth to mouth, in voices scarcely above a whisper. It was a flock of junior barristers, issuing from the court, radiant and laughing, who brought the next news— Fourteen years! Fourteen years!' they called out. This time the crowd in Westminster Hall took up the cry in louder tones, and there was some attempt at cheering, but it did not prevail. The less dense crowd in the yard received the intelligence without any demonstration, and after a brief pause made off with one consent for the judge's entrance in St. Margaret Street where, peradventure, they might see the prisoner taken away, or at least would catch a glimpse of the judges and counsel. From this hour up to nearly four o'clock, the crowd, in numbers far exceeding those present at the first intimation of the verdict and sentence, hung about St. Margaret's Street and Palace Yard, waiting for the coming forth of the prisoner, who had long ago been safely lodged in Newgate they did not know that as soon as the convict was given in charge of the tipstaff of the court he was led away by inspector denning along a carefully planned and circuitous route that entirely baffled the curiosity of the waiting crowd through the court of exchequer the prisoner and his guards went by the members private staircase across the lobby along the corridor through the smoking-room into the commons courtyard where a plain police omnibus was in waiting, with an escort of eleven men. In this the prisoner took his seat, and was driven through the Victoria gate en route for Newgate. He accompanied his custodians as quietly as if they were conducting him to his brougham, and only once broke the silence of the journey to Newgate. "'It's very hot,' he said as he panted along the passages of the House of Commons. "'And I am so fat!' End of chapter 4